The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from Ukraine. Discuss the news from the Russian Republic of Dagestan, where an anti-Semitic mob stormed an international airport. And Dom Nichols interviews former Australian General Mick Ryan. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our team is reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 30th of October, one year and 247 days since the full-scale invasion began. Joining me today are Associate Editor Dominic Nichols and Editor of the Central Asia and South Caucasus Bulletin, James Kilner. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Ukraine and around the world. I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, and James Kilner, editor of the Central Asia and South Caucasus Bulletin. Dom, what's the latest news from Ukraine? Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's start with overnight news. So Russian forces said to have launched 12 Shahid uh, kamikaze drones, so the 131 and 136, and two KH-59 guided missiles at uh, Ukraine last night. This is from Kyiv's Air Force. Uh, Ukrainian air defences reportedly shot down all of the drones and missiles that went over Mikolaev, uh, Hezon, Kirovrad, uh, Chikazi, uh, Shtomir, Dnipropetrovsk, uh, sorry, been practising that one all morning, and Kalmetsky oblasts. Now, the missiles were launched from the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia Oblast, but the drones came from Russia's port city of Primorsko-Aktarsk. That's in uh, in Russia. Uh, again, Ukrainian Air Force said that Primorsko-Aktarsk um, is on the east coast of the Sea of Azov, about 100 k's south southeast of uh, Mariupol. So across the across the Sea of Azov from Mariupol, hit that sort of the, the eastern bit of the Sea of Azov, the coast there. That's where um, that's where the drones came from. Then in southern Mykolaiv Oblast, air defences destroyed five Shahid drones. Uh, that's Governor Vitaly Kim. He's saying that on Telegram. The debris from one of them came down, caused a fire in the Bashtanka district. That's north of Mykolaiv. Uh, the governor there has reported that. No casualties reported across those strikes. However, there were injuries reported, no deaths reported yet, but injuries to civilians and buildings uh, injuries to civilians and buildings damaged in uh, another Russian missile strike on a ship repair yard in Odessa. That comes out of Ole Keeper, the regional governor down there. He said the attack caused a fire, which was quickly extinguished by our rescuers. The administrative building and equipment of the enterprise were damaged. I think I've seen some figures in the low, low double figures of injuries there. No deaths reported at the moment. Then for their part, Ukraine's army said this morning that it had successfully hit, in their words, successfully hit, part of Russia's air defence system um, in uh, annexed uh, Crimea overnight. Now, social media, the army's uh, strategic, this is Ukraine's army's strategic communications unit, said the armed forces successfully hit a strategic object of the air defence system on the western coast of occupied Crimea. There was a little bit of confusion around this. So 
You've got Agence France Press are reporting, uh, actually just in the last couple of hours, that the Russian MOD has issued a statement saying uh, on October 30th at around um, 1300, that was, um, well, 10, 10, hour, 10 o'clock in London time this morning, three hours ago, an attempted attack by the Kyiv regime with eight Storm Shadow cruise missiles at targets on the Crimean Peninsula was stopped. All missiles were shot down. Now, there are images on social media suggesting that some got through. Not that I'm ever suggesting the Russian MOD uh, talk through their Balkans, but there are images on social media in daylight, importantly, I'll come back to why in a moment, of, um, of missile um, uh, trails through the sky. It does look like some things have been hit in the sky, but there's very definitely uh, plumes from damage on the ground. So something's got through there. And it's important that we, we note that during the day because Rybar, as I've said before, one of the um, uh, one of the least unreliable Russian mill blogger channels, saying that Crimea was hit by two US ATACMs at three o'clock this morning. I mean, how on earth they know that? I don't I, I'm, I think they're guessing. But there's been some blasts. Uh, reportedly in the in the early hours, the dark hours of this morning, and also uh, later on today in daylight, um, you know, Russians are claiming it's Takums, it's Storm Shadow, they've all shot down, blah blah blah. Wait, we don't know. You know, I, you, you can't really tell to be perfectly honest, but something's definitely got through. Then on to the sort of frontline updates. A lot of this reporting coming from um, from ISW Institute for the Study of War. Um, Ukraine, uh, they've pushed. A little bit further forward in um, Bakhmut, so the south of Bakhmut, and in the western Zaporizhia Oblast over the weekend, that's salient in the, in the west there. Geolocated footage published yesterday shows their forces had moved across the railway line south of Avdivka. Avdivka has been you know, fought over for, for you know, very heavily for, for weeks now. This is about 10k southwest of Bakhmut. Prominent Russian mill blogger said Ukrainian forces had um, established control over unspecified positions in uh, in the west of Zaporizhia, uh, continuing moves over the last week. Then separately, there's a lot of lot of chatter about um, Russian airborne forces commander Colonel General Mikhail uh, Tiplinsky. Suggestions that he's replaced uh, Colonel General Oleg uh, Makarevich, Makarevich as the commander of the Russian Dnieper grouping of forces operating in Hezon area. Russian MOD not yet announced or confirmed reports of uh, Makarevich's dismissal and unlikely to do so, quite frankly, given their tendency to um, to not really comment on on major uh, high profile military command changes. But one uh, Russian blogger is saying that Putin dismissed Makarevich during the, uh, his, that's Putin's, recent visit to the Southern Military District headquarters in Rostov-on-Don on October 19th, so just over a week ago. Um, that blogger is also claiming that Toplinsky was effectively demoted. So the guy taking over that VDV force, the Airborne Forces force, effectively demoted from his position as Deputy Overall Theatre Commander. Now, there's nothing else to back that up, and we can't verify it. This is coming out of Russian channels. I would be surprised, though, if anyone tainted with the whiff of failure, such that they were demoted from one position, would then be promoted, um, or if not actually promoted in terms of rank, put in charge of a of a VDV force in, in Hezon. You know, Russia, we've not seen them the type of organisation to say, Look, fella, you're doing a great job. You're just kind of you're not perfect for that role, but we see you being brilliant in this role. So let's let's demote you from over there and um, and make you in charge of this. They just don't they haven't really been doing that. So I'm I'll be surprised if that is the case. 
However, there are rumours about Makarevich's dismissal. They started coming out last week. Um, many people saying, many Russian people saying that his removal was long overdue due to the handling of the situation in, in Herzon. There are suggestions that the Ukrainian bridgehead on the east bank of the Dnipro, or if it's not an actual bridgehead, then these repeated Ukrainian landings or raids or whatever, whatever they are, possibly triggered his dismissal. Uh, and then finally, the New York Times are reporting that the US will send Ukraine hybrid air defence systems. They're citing US officials that say the so-called Frankensam systems, um, obviously Frankenstein and surface away missile, SAM, um, Frankensam systems that merge advanced Western air defence missiles with modified Soviet launchers or other missile launchers that Ukraine already possesses will soon be on their way. So the Frankensam combinations that are being muted uh, include modified Soviet book launchers with American Sea Sparrow missiles, uh, Soviet-era radars and American Sidewinder missiles, and Cold War-era Hawk systems, all being sort of all in the mix there. New York Times reports that the US is testing a Frankensam combination of a Patriot missile and a Ukrainian domestically produced radar. And then U.S. De- uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia Policy, Laura Cooper, she stated that the Frankensams contribute to filling critical gaps in Ukrainian air defenses. So the fact that you've got a, an official there going um, named and attributed, that does give credence to the, the earlier thoughts of quote-unquote U.S. officials. I always hate uh, the reporting, if one I have to, or, or reading that, you know, sources say this or officials say that. It's like, you know, anybody could be a source or an official. Um, so you've just got to be very, very careful there. But if they're backing it up, I mean, New York Times are re- reputable. Occasionally, you know, as we all do, get it wrong, but they are reputable. Backing up a report from U.S. officials with a named um, official such as Laura Cooper does give credence to that uh, to that story. So, uh, strap yourselves in, everyone. We're going to hear a lot more about Frank and Sam's in the uh, in the coming weeks. And I'll take a pause there, David. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Well, thank you very much, Dom. Uh, in the absence of Francis Sternley for today, I'll take us through just a few interesting pieces of uh, diplomatic and political news. So Russia's Defence Minister, Sergei Shoigu, has said that Moscow is ready for talks on the post-conflict settlement of the Ukraine crisis and on further coexistence with the West, but the Western countries needed to stop seeking Russia's strategic defeat. This comes from Shoigu speaking at the Chinese-organised Jiangshan Forum, a multilateral international conference on Asian security and defence security issues. Shoigu said that the conditions for such talks had not yet been met. He also said, uh, quote, it is important to ensure equal relations between all the nuclear powers and permanent United Nations Security Council members who carry special responsibility for upholding peace and global stability. And he accused the West of promoting an arms race in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, This is from Russian state media who reported uh, that he said the West's ostentatious desire for dialogue was covering up a build-up of forces in the region. Going back to Ukraine, uh, Deputy Minister, Deputy Foreign Minister Mykola Tochitsky has said that Ukraine is still aiming to hold a global uh, peace summit of world leaders this year. He said this aim remains necessary and possible. It has been demonstrated that there is interest in this. He said this to Reuters uh, on the phone. Uh, heads of state and heads of government would attend the meeting. These comments uh, came after international representatives met in Malta over the weekend to discuss Kyiv's peace formula for its war 
with Russia. The Malta meeting was attended in person or online by representatives from 66 countries, Kiev said, with over 20 more countries participating than at the last such meeting in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia in August, and the talks did not include Russia. So some updates there uh, from Shoigu and from Ukraine just on uh, potential movements for peace talks in the future. One more thing from me before we go to James Kilner. Over in the US, uh, the new US House Speaker Mike Johnson is considering a standalone funding package for Israel, which could potentially put funding for Ukraine under threat. Johnson expressed confidence that the measure would pass and resisted President Joe Biden's call to create a broader aid package, which covers both Israel and Ukraine. Mr Johnson said, there are lots of things going on around the world that we have to address, and we will. But right now, what's happening in Israel takes the immediate attention, and I think we've got to separate that and get it through. Just a reminder to listeners, before he was elected Speaker, Mr Johnson voted with 93 other Republicans to cut off aid to Ukraine. So just a couple of interesting political and diplomatic uh, stories there. But let's go to uh, James Kilner. James, you've been looking over the weekend at stories coming out of Russia. Let's start in Dagestan. Hi, David. So the big story last night at the end of the evening was the um, this crowd or, or mob, whatever you want to call it, of a thousand or uh, some reports say two thousand very angry, mainly young men um, charging into and taking over the international airport at Mahachkala, which is the 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 biggest town in uh, the biggest city in in Dagestan, the capital, six hundred and fifty odd thousand people. Uh, lying on the on the Caspian Sea, etc. Uh, they charged in. Uh, they smashed up. Um, they, they overwhelmed the security guards, and then they were they were looking for for Jews. So they've been whipped up into a fury. They've been having a protest and that a, a flight from Israel was landing, and uh, they uh, the anti-Semitic um, sentiments been rising in the North Caucasus, and they were literally hunting for Jews. So absolutely terrifying for the people in the airport. They're a crazy scary footage of um, uh, employees of, uh, you know, of of the airport trying to hide in offices and, and, and these men just breaking open doors saying, where are the Jews, where are the Jews? Shouting Allah Akbar, etc, uh, etc. Et they said they wanted to expel the Jews, but um, one, one of the security guys is, is, is heard shouting, you're going to kill someone, you're going to kill someone. And then they charge out onto the tarmac. Uh, this is all happening around uh, 8 o'clock local time, I think. 7.30, o'clock local time. They then charge out into the tarmac um, where at least two flights have recently landed, still with their passengers on board. There's mobile phone footage uh, from one of the aeroplanes of people trying to disembark from the aeroplane and then seeing this mob um, running across the tarmac towards them, carrying pro-Palestine flags, shouting anti-Semitic chants, that sort of thing. Um, and the steward on on the, on the flight get, is, is is shouting, "Get back inside! Get back inside!" Um, and then they all, all the passengers uh, leap back inside. They, they 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 lock the doors and they push away the stairs. Um, and then you get this crazy sight of these um, the these uh, these protesters cl- clambering over the wings of the aircraft, shouting, "Where are the Jews? Where are the Jews?" Um, one of the flights was from Dubai, actually. One of them was from Israel. Uh, the flights, um, flights still running between Russia and Israel. Uh, and the flights to Mahachkala are, are cheaper than flying directly to Moscow. And from Mahachkala, people can then um, catch an internal flight around Russia, that sort of thing. Uh, the security forces, the Russian police forces, had been mainly, it appears, standing aside 
um, un until it, it really got out of hand. So they've been standing aside, they've been allowing the anti-Semitic chants, etc. And then when the protesters charged onto the tarmac, that's when they started to act. Uh, they're heavily outnumbered. It seems, although it's still very unclear exactly what happened, that there was um, fighting, there's certainly arrests. In one video, there's a lot of bangs and flashes. I'm not entirely sure who's doing the firing or what they're firing. And there's reports of about 20 protesters or 20 people being injured, about three or four police and the rest protesters, some, some in serious condition. The, the authorities now say that they have the uh, scenario situation under control. They've closed the airport. The passengers, meanwhile, had a terrifying four or five hours uh, and then were, 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 were allowed to go for flight, etc. Now, to bring it back to, um, to, to, to the theme of this podcast, the Russia-Ukraine war, and why, why this sort of internal incident, very much linked to Gaza and Israel, uh, is important um, uh, to the Ukraine-Russia uh, war. We have to consider the sort of the wider implications of Dagestan, which is a majority Muslim um, region right on the fringe of, of Russia. It borders Caspian Sea, as I said, and also borders Azerbaijan. These are both important things when you look at Ukraine and uh, Russia war. Um, the Caspian Sea, as we know, has become an important conduit for weapons and other goods between Iran and Russia. And one of the ports that has been used is Mahachkala. So any um, unrest in Mahachkala or Dagestan, and this can get wider, there is huge, huge growing anti-Semitic sentiment and seeming some sort of radicalization of 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 uh, people in Dagestan, one of the poorest regions in Russia, uh, with, with a with a history of protests. So any unrest um, in Dagestan and the port of Mahachkala and indeed and also the airport and the railway systems which go through there, etc., is a headache for the Kremlin. Um, it also Dagestan also borders Chechnya and ha did also have a, a significant. Um, role in the sort of anti-Kremlin fighting of, of, of the early 2000s. So there's that. And as I said, it borders Azerbaijan and the trade route um, from Russia through Azerbaijan, uh, through, through Iran and then, and then to, to India, etc., um, via, via the Indian Ocean um, and Persian Gulf is, has become more important as, as the war goes on. So uh, really important thing, um, and obviously very dramatic, but actually really important for watchers of the Ukraine and Russia war to keep an eye on to. Thank you very much, James, for talking us through that. One more question from me. Um, what do you make of these these anti-Semitic protests in regards to the authority of the Kremlin, the authority of of the Russian state, um, the fact that, as you said, you know, the police seem to sort of stand aside um, for quite a lot of this. Uh, what's your take on that? So, um, when 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 you get out into the regions of Russia, um, the quality of the police force really drops hugely. I mean, um, it's it's incomparable to the police forces in in um, Moscow and St Petersburg, where the the specialist police units are there. Uh, they got very well trained riot police, etc. Um, so I'm I'm not at all surprised by the relative incompetence of the uh, police initially, at least. Um, it does seem that uh, 
the authorities started to realise that they had a very, very serious situation on their hands, you know, basically when it became too late and, and they'd lost control of the airport. I, I, I literally mean the airport was captured by protesters. Um, and then they called in some heavy reinforcements and then that's when these the fighting started and the, and the arrests happened. Um, I think the... The, the importance, so the Kremlin's already trying to portray this as a um, uh, the, the, the result of outside influence, etc. So, so they're already trying to say this is not a domestic internal problem, this is an outside influence problem, etc., um, etc. Et I, I very much, I'm, my personal opinion is that this is rooted in huge poverty and huge disparities in wealth and opportunities in someone like Dagestan, something like 75% of the budget in Dagestan is handed down by the central government. Uh, there's very few job opportunities. It's a very poor place. The Russian army's been recruiting very heavily uh, for its war in Ukraine in Dagestan, as it has done in lots of um, uh, sort of non-core Russian regions, if you like, sort of ethnic, like, ethnically diverse, often Muslim regions. Um, so all these frustrations boiling over, and I think... Uh, the Kremlin might find it very hard to put this, put a lid back on it now, and it's going to take in a lot of resources, potentially very problematic. Next door, you also have Ramzan Kadyrov, uh, the leader of Chechnya, who is coming out with some absolutely um, vile and crazy uh, insult towards Israel um, over, over its bombing campaign in, in, in Gaza. And this is feeding into the growing anti-Semitic sentiment in the region, uh, where you have cultural Jewish culture centres being burned, uh, you have uh, lots of uh, highly injury graffiti appearing, etc. So I think the Kremlin is actually possibly starting to get worried. Putin's called a meeting this morning to talk to his, his main guys about this, um, and we'll start seeing some PR campaign, maybe some crackdown. There are already reports of special forces going from house to house looking for the um, the ringleaders of the gangs who are looking for Jews. James, hello, mate. It's Dom here. Just wonder if I could um, ask a couple, if I may. Um, you said anti-Semitic sentiment has been rising in the North Caucasus for some for some time. I mean, has it been? Has it always been there, and the lid has been sort of eased off a little bit by the Kremlin, or do you think they've been surprised by the, this outbreak of violence over the over the weekend? Because I, I, looking at those pictures, I struggle to see how how that could be. Um, it, it just seems so organised, very specific place um you know to, to go to the airport and attack the, the plane and all that all that kind of stuff rushing through the terminal it just seemed it seemed so organized it had the he had the hand of hand of external you know organizations for me but i just wonder what your what your view is there hi dom um so 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 i'll take the first bit of that Initially, on the, uh, the 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 Jewish issue in the North Caucasus and the anti-Semitism which we've seen. So, in my travels around the North Caucasus and, and including Dagestan, I've never come across anti any anti-Semitic sentiment, particularly. Um, of course, you know it's, it will undoubtedly be there somewhere, but it is they, they don't wear it on their sleeve, etc. Um, it's also a very, very ethnically and linguistically diverse region, Dagestan. It's celebrated for its diversity and, and its, in linguists and in ethnicity. We're talking like little, it's a very, very hilly mountainous region apart from the strip of land which runs north-south along the Caspian Sea. Um, and uh, in these valleys and hilltop villages, they, they, they have their own uh, languages and um, 
culture, etc. And in amongst all this have, have, have been uh, Jewish communities. So I don't think that anti-Semitism has been um, a major issue in its history. Although um, listeners may, may, may indeed want to correct me on that. Uh, it's not something I've, I've witnessed. Um, as, as, as far as it being organised, this uh, mob... Uh, that's a very difficult question to answer, and, and, I, and I'm just not sure. I mean, I do think, and I think this is the key issue when considering the, this question, about whether it has actually been organised by outside influences, as the Kremlin is trying to suggest. As I said earlier, uh, Dagestan in particular, in the whole of Russia, has been become like a boiling point, a sort of a flashpoint for protest against the Kremlin. Uh, when mobilisation, when the Kremlin mobilised people, or men rather, 13 months ago for its war in Ukraine, um, uh, there, there were small protests across Russia. And, and as we know, they, they, they ended up mobilising about 300,000 men. But there were very big protests in Dagestan, mainly by the mothers of, um, of men who had been taken off to war. And these protests took a lot of effort to, to put down. And then again, this summer in August, uh, when the power and the water was failing in central Mahachkala, there are again very big protests. So we, we we're used to seeing these protests in in Dagestan, um, in, in in particular, and we do know that there's been some big pro-Palestine um, protests in the city. Um, as as we all know, social media is a massive accelerator. So there's big protests in in somewhere in Turkey or somewhere else, and then um, you know uh, suddenly there's also a big protest in Dagestan, and, and these things escalate. So, and, and, and also, we also know there have been other anti-Semitic attacks. So this thing has been building, the police have been standing by, it may have been organised uh, by outside influences, I obviously don't have any information on that, but I also think there's huge potential for this to be a real sort of grassroots frustration. There isn't any direct link between Dagestan and the Arab world in particular, um, but there is a lot of frustrated, very angry people uh, and street-level politics does operate in this part of the world. Sure. I mean, when I was um, suggesting uh, about that, as the Kremlin say, they're, they're talking about external influences. I th- I think, you know, this is one, of, this is an, and I think it's another example of the Kremlin doing the whole blaming others for exactly what they're doing. I'm suggesting that it was it was orchestrated by, by the Kremlin. And the reason I say that is because I mean, we have seen in the last just the last couple of weeks, um, Russia, Putin, the Kremlin finally sort of taking a side, haven't we? We saw, correct me if I'm wrong, please, was, was it Lavrov we saw meeting senior Hamas and Hezbollah leaders? But certainly in the last couple of weeks, Russia have been up to now, they've been dancing this this line of not not really having an opinion on Israel Gaza um, other than the the stated and, and known relationship that Israel has with Iran, but but that was kind of characterised as as very bilateral. You give us Shahid drones, we'll give you um, fighter jet technology. It didn't really sort of until recently didn't almost bleed out into the Israel Gaza issue, and Israel for its part had been very coy in full-throated support for Ukraine because a you know, large Russian diaspora in Israel and existing lengthy ties, blah, blah, blah. But it does now seem as if just in the last week or so, Putin has has picked a side. 
and and so that's why I wonder if there is if this was organised. Um, and separately, I wonder what that means now. If if Russia has said right, we're um, we you know we we're on the side against you, Israel. I I I think that's quite significant in terms of the weapon, if not the, the sheer quantity of supplies, but certainly the technology and the know-how that Israel would be able to transfer to Ukraine if it were so minded. Um, no question mark at the end of that, I'm afraid, James, but any thoughts on any of those ramblings would be most welcome. Uh, just, uh, uh, well, very interesting, Dom, Dom as ever, interesting sort of an analysis. I, I, obviously, the, the Kremlin has lots of levers it can pull. I'm not. I. I. I can't see any particular benefit for the Kremlin um, to whip up anti-Semitic, like very hard anti-Semitic, um, pro-Palestine sentiment in an area which it knows is a tinderbox, and as I've discussed, is actually uh, logistically quite important for its its operations with Iran, etc. Um, I mean, you could say that it needed needed to 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 show some 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 support from the general population because it's not getting any pro-Palestine marches in in any of the main uh, urban centres in Moscow, St. Petersburg, etc. Elsewhere, uh, so you could say that um, if, if 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 it was a Kremlin stunt, it clearly got completely out of hand, uh, and now the local authorities are under a lot of pressure to to sort it out. Uh, and the uh, the local mufti uh, guys, the, the chief muftis of Dagestan, etc., they've also come out hugely against this sort of mob anti-Semitic uh, way of doing things. Um, you know, they're being um, uh, sensible and saying Islam is not in, in favour of all this sort of thing. So, so yeah, we, we, but we're, we, what we do know is we are at a very sort of precarious juncture in Dagestan and it could have quite interesting... Um, uh, impact and sort of resonance uh, for the Kremlin's war in Ukraine. Thank you very much, Dom, for those questions. Thank you, James, for your answers. James, can we stay with you, just staying with Russia? Um, Russia's economic woes, they're getting worse. You've been looking at this. Um, What would you sum up for our listeners? Right, so uh, really quickly, it was a very insightful moment on Friday when the Russian Central Bank raised its interest rate by uh, 200 basis uh, to 15% from 13%. Um, so this was the highest since uh, the beginning of the war. And it, and it, it was basically the, the central bank admitting that it had an inflation problem. Now, this inflation problem is important to the Kremlin and is important for uh, Ukraine watchers because it just piles pressure on the Kremlin, piles pressure on Putin ahead of a presidential election next year. Um, And is an admission of sorts that Western sanctions and the shift to uh, very much a war footing for the Russian economy is impacting consumers, uh, impacting the ruble, um, etc., etc., making people feel poorer. So um, the, 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 infl- the headline inflation figures for Russia is that prices in October, and it analyzed inflation was 6.6%, which is up from 6% in September, and economists are, uh, think it will get as high as 7.5% by the end of the year. So we are seeing rather steep um, uh, price rises. And this comes at the same time that the ruble uh, is bouncing around the psychologically important 100 ruble to the $1 mark. 
this uh, th- this mark was broken in the beginning of the month, but then uh, um, capital controls strengthened it, and it's now back to 93. But you have to keep in mind that before the war started, the ruble was worth 75 against the dollar, so uh, about um, 30% stronger, there were, um, 25, 30% stronger than it is now. So that is a really important f- figure. Now, uh, this all comes off the back of the Kremlin saying they're going to double uh, the military budget for next year. We know that they've been transforming shopping centres into weapons factories. Bakeries are building drones rather than baking bread. Um, and the, the Western products, okay, they're coming through the back channels in Central Asia and the South Caucasus, but they're just not, not as many as they once were. So, so all these prices are rising. Um, and this is, you know, had, does have the potential to irritate people. Russians historically have a, have a high endurance factor. Um, and I would expect to see it happening again now, but this all hurts. So an important sort of, side story for Ukraine and uh, Russia war watchers to keep abreast of. I think this is going to be an issue um, certainly by the presidential election in March next year. Of course Vladimir Putin will undoubtedly stand. I think he might have already announced it. I can't remember. Um, And of course he'll win. But the important thing with that election is just how people, how grumpy people are. And this sort of thing with the huge death toll, we know that uh, Russia's suffering in Ukraine and they, frankly, lack of any uh, real success and all the lies and propaganda they'll be given will start irritating more and more people. So something just to keep uh, aware of. Thank you very much, James. It's been fascinating hearing you. Um, can we press you for one more story, um, the return of the Wagner Group, and then we'll go to our final thoughts. Yeah, really important story, this. Uh, obviously, direct Im- impact on the uh, front lines in Ukraine. Now, this happened, I think this happened Saturday, Sunday. Um, it was confirmed by uh, the Grey Zone, which is um, a Wagner telegram channel, that Wagner forces had redeployed to the front lines uh, around Avdivka uh, for the first time since, uh, well, since they mutinied in, in June again against the Kremlin. Um, and importantly, it said it was keeping the Wagner, uh, sorry, the Grey Zone Telegram Channel, so that Wagner was keeping its identity, keeping its command structures, and keeping its ideology. This is big news, I think, because this completely rolls back against how the Kremlin was presenting uh, the Wagner Group previously. It previously said Wagner wouldn't be stripped of all its uh, identity, they'd have to rejoin either the Russian military defence or another mercenary units uh, and be called something else and go under different commanders, etc. Now, this seems to be not been happening. Um, they are still called Wagner. In fact, the Grey Zone said they would restart their recruitment efforts. Uh, they'd re- they 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 were looking out for new musicians, the sort of uh, nickname they have for Wagner soldiers, and they were going to wear those uh, that very distinctive and very nasty skull uh, skull in a sniper sight um, logo that they have. Uh, later on the same day, Ramzan Kadyrov popped up again. He had a busy weekend, um, uh, being anti-Semitic, and 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 now in this case, posing or, or claiming uh, that 170 Wagner fighters had joined his um, a, a new battalion that he was raising. Um, and then there was he posted with a video of one of his commanders meeting the, the Wagner guys, 
and they were definitely wearing their Wagner insignia, uh, and they definitely looked like Russian mercenaries, not Chechens. So, so, so they, I, I think they're definitely back. Really importantly, David, on on this point, um, they are operating as Wagner, it seems, but under the control of the Russian National Guard. Now, this is important because the Russian National Guard is not part of the Ministry of Defence. It reports directly to Vladimir Putin. So it seems that the whole thing has come full circle. In June, um, Wagner were rebelling against the Kremlin, not necessarily against Putin, but against the Ministry of Defence. Uh, they, were, they, 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 um, they quit their rebellion. Um, they had a peace deal. Two months later, their, their leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, is killed. Uh, and now, in October... They are back, redeploying on the front line. These battle-hardened guys, uh, often murderers and and rapists and drug pushers, etc., recruited from directly from prisons. They're back on the front line and they're working directly for the National Guard and for Vladimir Putin. Well, thank you very much, James, for all of those updates. It's really good to have you back on the podcast, James Kilner. Would you like the very final words? Obviously, I'll be looking out for this uh, for the um, the next phase of this Dagestan story it's going to be very interesting to see how the Kremlin spins it see, see what happens next and see where this terrible antisemitism which has reared its ugly head in the region is, is going to grow etc uh, incredibly worrying for everyone um, and also f- again for this podcast I can't stress it enough where the importance of, 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 of it on the uh, on the Ukraine-Russia war um, aside from that, I think it's. Um, I, th- I think the point that Don made uh, needs to be keep keep in mind as well. The Kremlin shift to sort of seemingly a very pro or relatively pro Hamas uh, stance, and how this impacts Israel's uh, weapons flows or support for Ukraine, whatever it is. One story that came out on Saturday, which I wrote up for the, the newspaper, is uh, was rather um, the Kremlin handed Hamas a list of eight dual national Israeli Russian hostages, uh, which were captured on October seventh from the kibbutz, I think. Um, and uh, the Hamas leader, remember Ham- Hamas were in Moscow on Thursday, uh, has promised to find them in the in the maze of tunnels underneath Gaza and release them. So. I think that that on the on the bigger picture international stage is an important moment um, to see if that does happen, and we see the Russian and Israeli hostages freed. Um, I mean, there's f- four hostages. I think have been three so far, about 220. But if we see all eight Russian Israeli hostages suddenly freed, then I think Dom's sentiment that the Kremlin is getting four square behind Hamas is hardened again. So I, I think that that is definitely something that um, podcast listeners should be watching and, and, of course, listening out for. Now, since the start of the full-scale invasion, a very wise and assured and knowledgeable voice on the conventional aspects of the war has been former General Mick Ryan from the Australian Army. He's been very prolific in his um, tweeting and he's he's pretty much on the money the whole time. So obviously we had to hunt him down and uh, pin him to the seat and, and have a chat. Although he was in Australia, we were in London, so there was a little bit of crackly stuff, but uh, it was a delight to speak to General Mick Ryan. 
very keen to talk to you about the the conventional side of the war in Ukraine and then possibly given the news that's just broken in the last couple of hours here about these US strikes in Syria, maybe come on to a little bit uh, a little bit about that uh, later if I may. But I'll, I'll stick to the conventional side because that's, that's our particular sort of forte here. I'd be really interested just to start off please if you if you could set the scene of how you see that that the, the war at the moment 20 months in and just just if you could address the question a lot of people are saying that the counteroffensive has failed it's stalled blah 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 i think they're taking too land centric a view of that not taking into account what's happening in the black sea in the air in russia and and the wider sort of the whole sphere of of the the battlefield the battle space but i just wonder if you could just introduce us with your view 20 months in please yeah, thanks. It's great to be with you. I think at the moment, Ukraine is in a better position than it was this time last year. It's taken a bit more ground, but it's running a variety of different campaigns concurrently. So it's it's running three major land campaigns at the moment. It's, it's running one in the northeast to defend against a pretty large Russian operation, one in the east that's able to conduct both offensive and defensive operations and its southern offensive operation. None of them have failed. The term fail is the wrong description for what's gone on the gone on with the ground. <clears throat> but certainly in the south, which everyone seemed to have built up to this war-winning counter-offensive and something that no one could ever live up to, it hasn't made the ground or taken the objectives that many hoped and expected that it would do. That doesn't mean it's a failure, but it certainly hasn't reached the objectives that many had hoped for. But I think in other areas, whether it's the strategic strike campaign that Ukraine has running, which it just didn't have the capacity to do this time last year, you're seeing the Russians being pushed back out of the Black Sea. You're seeing them having to redeploy forces to depend defend their own borders on the ground and in the air, including in Moscow. And you're seeing the Ukrainians continue their strategic influence campaign. So I don't think we could describe what's gone on in the last six months as a failure. I think it's been an uneven record of uh, successes and, and offensives that haven't gone exactly as planned. Which, for, for shorthand, people that that do this sort of thing for a living might call war. I mean, that is kind of what you should expect. I think people, maybe our our expectations were to, were were too governed by um by recent the recent counterinsurgency decades. But just on the way they've they've conducted themselves since the since I mean I don't like using the term counteroffensive because it kind of implies that it's just a one off. I mean it, the, the it's an offensive. But we've we've seen how they how they've tried to um try to use the new equipment that's been gifted from external supporters, but also the the tactics. And they've tried to um, transform their military from a very Soviet doctrine into a a more NATO slash Western doctrine um, with mixed results. And we've noticed how they've moved back from combined arms manoeuvre, tanks, artillery, infantry all working together, to, to, to a very much more almost Route 1 artillery and infantry heavy perspective. Do you think that is... Do you think that's wise? And do you think that's all, all that we could expect? It's, it's very difficult to transform your systems, your doctrine, whilst in contact with the enemy, surely? It's normally easier to transform your systems when you're in contact with the enemy. The Ukrainians have been working on the transition to a NATO organisation for 
uh, sometime before the war, indeed before the 2014 Russian invasion. Certainly 2014 spurred them on and there were more training missions and 2022 with the influx of NATO equipment and munitions has accelerated that. But, you know, we need to remember that NATO equipment only makes up about 10% of their armoured fighting vehicle fleet and about 30% of their artillery. So this is not a predominantly NATO-equipped military. And I think the media missed this uh, consistently. I think that the cultural transition is more difficult than the equipment transition, notwithstanding the great efforts that General Zeluzhny and many others are going to. That just takes time in a large organisation with decades of Soviet-era influence. I think, too, that we should recognise that NATO... I think there was an intellectual failure in NATO in the preparation of the Ukrainians for this counteroffensive, And the reason I say that is because there's been a lot of critique of the Ukrainians going, they're not using combined arms as we do it and all that kind of thing. The reality is the combined arms that they've been taught is combined arms doctrine that's Cold War era, that's decades old, and they were taught to use combined arms breaching equipment that basically tracks back from the Second World War in much, much lower quantities than the doctrine even recommends. And this is in the face of a modern battlefield that is extraordinarily different to the battlefield that combined arms doctrine, which is designed to take place within an airland battle, was designed for. The Ubiquitous sensors, including UAVs, mean that the detection to destruction time on the modern battlefield is an order of magnitude lower than anything any NATO military prepared for in the Cold War. And the technologies are decades old. There's been absolutely no technological development in obstacle breaching and mine detection and clearance in 30 years. And So in this environment, NATO just thought, let's teach them the normal combined arms and they'll be good to go. I mean, that is an intellectual failure and we have to take responsibility for that. Now, I'm not saying the Ukrainians are without blame here, but I have to tell you, we had six months to look at what the Russians were building in the South. We had 18 months to recognise that the modern battlefield had transformed. And I have to tell you that doctrinally, we have not kept up and I think we failed the Ukrainians. So, so that failures. I accept the model of being built into an airland battle, and and for the various reasons that we can go and talk about, the air aspect of this war has been markedly lower the, the, the amount of activity than we, you might expect. But you're saying it's a, it was the, an intellectual failure, NATO's intellectual failure, that has partly contributed to the situation we're in, to, or the Ukraine's in today. So. Uh, do you think that's been addressed by NATO? Are they, are they turning this around? Are they are they aware of these shortcomings and taking steps to address it? Well, you'd hope so. You know, it's a big organisation that a lot of countries invest a lot in. But at the end of the day, I think we do need an intellectual reinvigoration to have a look at this different environment we're working in. How do humans and machines work together better? What are the right tactics? What are the right organisations? The Ukrainians have been experimenting with this in the face of this very dense defensive regime in the South where the Russians have competently executed their doctrine for the first time in the war. 
you know, the gap between doctrine and practice in the South has been much, much smaller than at any time in the Russian invasion. So all these things have come together to result in an offensive in the South that has not advanced as far as we'd like and where they have been able to break in, you know, conduct the break-in battle, it's been at a rate that it's allowed the Russians to rapidly respond and develop uh, successive defensive lines to the rear. So, you know, I think we've got a lot of thinking to do here about how we might chew our way through this uh, given current battlefield conditions. Now, that thinking that you described there obviously takes time to identify the lessons and then learn them, then turn that into new capability. And you know know better than me, you've not learned the lesson until it's actually affected systemic change in your your military. Is winter going to offer that time? Will winter be, as the ground hardens, so potentially offers more opportunity for manoeuvre, but equally is literally freezing and is is not, not a nice place to be in a trench. Do you think things will slow down over winter or will that allow the, the, this time that's needed to really take stock of what's been happening for the last six months especially and come out in, the, in spring? I think NATO's already had plenty of time to do this. The problem of detecting and clearing minefields is not a new one and we need something that reduces the time to do that by an order of magnitude and we're just not doing that. It is a combat imperative, but it's also a humanitarian imperative because 17 or 15% of Ukraine is contaminated with mines, including a lot of their very good agricultural lands. I have to ask, what the heck is going on in Europe if they're not solving these really critical problems that the Ukrainians aren't able to solve themselves? So, you know, I think over the winter they should be focusing on these things. They should be focusing on them now. But, you know, I know that the record of this war is providing just enough equipment just too late And I don't see that changing with just enough thinking just too late as well, unfortunately. What will happen over the winter? Well, I think the Ukrainians have, a, as I discussed before, a more sophisticated and robust strategic strike regime now. They have a a wide array of weapons from ATACMs to the Storm Shadows to their uh, remote-controlled maritime uh, drones and, and a range of other capabilities that allow them to attack the Russians over winter in a way they weren't able to do last year. Now, I expect the Russians will once again seek to terrorise the Ukrainian people by taking out power and other targets over winter. But this time, the Ukrainians have made clear, you take out a power station, we're going to do the same to you. That is a different strategic dynamic in this winter, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. One of the other um, intellectual challenges, if you like, I think that we've seen in the last few months was the battle for Bakhmut. And it came, we think, we have no, no great figures because of operational security, but we think it came at high cost to Ukraine. But clearly, it was a cost they were prepared to bear and I've made the point a number of times, I think, because they saw a lot of fracture lines there. They saw the regular army against, well, working alongside the People's Republics and the Wagner and the other mercenary groups, what have you. And they saw the fracture lines pushed against it. And eventually, some months down the line, there was a, a, a potential shattering there that you could possibly trace back to their, to their fight for back route. Do you see this, the same sort of thing happening today in, in Abdivka? The Russians are fighting very, very hard. And so, and so is Ukraine. For a town that has very limited operational, let alone strategic significance, why do you think both sides are fighting so hard for Avdivka? Yeah, I think Batmut was one of those battles that 
you had to be there to understand conditions on the ground to make the calls that the Ukrainians did. And they clearly uh, made life very difficult for the Russians. Now, you know, they destroyed the Wagner group at Bakhmut. And now in attacking in Bakhmut, they're destroying elite formations there. Um, I think Avdivka is a symptom of the Russians seeing an opportunity. I think it was a tactical opportunity. They saw a place where the Ukrainians were, where they thought the Ukrainians were weak, even though they've had eight years to prepare their defensive positions there. And they saw an opportunity to change the narrative going into the war with a quick and easy victory if the Ukrainians were as weak there as they thought. Now, I think they've miscalculated. The Ukrainians were far stronger there. They've certainly wasted a lot of combat power trying to capture a location that has no military utility other than maybe straightening their front line a little bit. But the Russians do seem to invest places of little interest or or, or military utility with this political kind of power. And that's what they did in Bakhmut. And I'm not sure whether they'll do the same at Avdivka. You know, the attacks there seem to have eased off a little bit. But, you know, they, they seem to want another victory going into winter. So it gives them this material for strategic information operations over the winter and going into 2024, which is an election year for Russia. I mean, how much stock do you think we should put in the figures that we get basically from the Ukrainian MOD? They're talking about a huge number of personnel and an enormous number, dozens, triple figure in the case of infantry fighting vehicles, losses of equipment, important equipment in, in Abdivka. I mean, did, can we, how much can we trust these figures, do you think? Uh, I'm not sure it's a, a question of trust. It's a question of just how good are the systems for counting and, and making sure there's not double counting and these kind of things. I mean, you know, if you have a look at what are the casualty figures for the Second World War, we still don't know the exact figure. It's a range. Uh, so there's absolutely no way that contemporary figures that, you know, can be absolutely known with total certainty and to expect the Ukrainians or anyone to be able to do that, I think is unreasonable. They're providing best estimates of Russian casualties. I think the US intelligence community has provided estimates which, you know, are with, within 25% of that. I, I think that's as bad as good as you're going to get at the moment. But absolute numbers are less important than the relative numbers. I mean, what is the proportion of Ukrainian losses to Russian losses? Uh, War is relative. There's no absolute. So it's about just being a little bit better and losing less people and killing more of them and destroying more of them. And do you think that is happening at the moment in Avdivka? We we get very little information about Ukrainian casualties and equipment losses, but it does seem from the way the lines are moving and some of the images we see from social media about how Russia is conducting the fight there, the high losses that are reported seem reasonable given the tactics they're employing. No, I think the Russians are taking a lot of casualties there. But, you know, the number of casualties doesn't always equal loss or or failure. You might take a lot of casualties and still make progress. And if your measure of success is moving forward, and uh, you think people are cheap and easy to come by, well, large losses are pretty immaterial. And, and clearly for Garasimov, the number of losses is 
as inconsequential to him compared to being seen to be going on the offensive and making progress in the eyes of Putin. Now, away from the land battle, obviously it's all interconnected, but away from the land battle specifically, the battle for the Black Sea and the fight in the air, if we may, we touched on air land battle earlier on. How do you assess the, um, th- those, two, those two domains at the moment? Yeah, I mean, the Black Sea is fascinating what's going on there. I mean, the Ukrainians don't have a surface fleet, but they've made a large part of the Black Sea a no-go zone for the Russian ships that launch these missiles. And that's, that's the effect they're after. And they've done that through a combination of ground and aerial sensors, remotely controlled attack boats and, and long-range missiles. So I think the Ukrainians have done very well against, you know, what has traditionally been a pretty strong Black Sea fleet. Now, you know, the Russians clearly have responded with mine laying in these lanes that were created most recently to export grain. You know, we should have expected that kind of bastardry from the Russians. And that's what it appears they've done is they've deliberately mined these things. So, you know, I think overall the Ukrainians are, are doing fairly well in the maritime fight. In the air, I, I think the, the scholarship of people like Justin Bronk has been extraordinarily important in looking at the Russian inability to mount a large-scale continuous air campaign with large numbers of aircraft. However, they have been able to use air power effectively to conduct long-range missile strikes and now essentially as bomb throwers uh, against Ukrainian lines of communications and Ukrainian units. I mean, they essentially draw a box and just throw bombs into it. And not all of them might hit something, but if they hit something, it's pretty devastating. So the Russians are using air power. They're not using it how NATO might, but this is not an air force that's used to conducting large-scale mass air campaigns over time either. And one other area, sort of unconventional warfare, talking about the partisan activity, alleged partisan activity, whatever is happening in the occupied territories of Ukraine, but also inside Russia itself. Uh, as a military commander, would you have welcomed that kind of activity? It, it's um, got some very interesting um, moral questions that it throws up for the force and where you stand on the um, collateral damage and loss of civilian life. Would you welcome... If you were in charge of the, the of Ukraine's fight right now, would you would you welcome the kind of partisan alleged partisan activity that we see inside Russia and the occupied territories? Well, there's a couple of kinds of resistance activity going on now. We should recall back in 2021, the Ukrainian Parliament passed a law that enabled the conduct of these kind of operations. So there's a lawful basis for these operations under Ukrainian law. Uh, In occupied territories, the Ukrainians have every right to do everything they can to remove the occupation army, which is doing the most awful things to local people. You know, there's torture chambers, there's rape, there's kidnapping, there's exporting of children and families into Russia. So, you know, the Ukrainians are right to be targeting military targets, which are entirely within their rights under international law to help liberate their territories. Now, the conduct of these operations in Russia, the two Belgorod incursions uh, clearly appeared to target military and Russian government targets. They weren't appearing to target civilians. So I don't have any IHL concerns with that. Uh, But yeah, it it is a difficult area. And once you start these things, 
they can get out of control if there isn't a tight hand on them. And I'll say that, you know, Ukraine's strategy so far in this war has been to fight a just war. I think it does that for a couple of reasons. Clearly, its support from the West is predicated on Ukraine being the good guys and acting like that. But secondly, I think that is a societal requirement from the Ukrainians. It's a democracy. The Ukrainians have respect for life. And I think they would see acting like the Russians do as a stain on their individual or their national soul. So I, I think the Ukrainians have a better handle on the conduct of war within IHL than the Russians do or probably ever will, given their, their current culture. I'm just coming towards the end now, but taking a step back, how is the war reported, discussed and, and received in Australia right now? Unfortunately, I think it's very much on the back burner because of what's going on in the Middle East. But even before that, you know, there was a trend away from paying attention to the war, unfortunately. You know, I was listening to a podcast yesterday where an American academic was describing US society as a blockbuster society. You know, they a blockbuster would come out, they'll watch it several times and then they don't pay attention until the next blockbuster and wars are kind of the same. People pay attention for a while and then they kind of drift off to the football grand finals and paying the mortgage and these kind of things. And I think, unfortunately, that's what's happening with the war in Ukraine. And I say that, that it's unfortunate because I think this war in Ukraine is far more important than most people realise. I think that it will set the scene for the conduct of large countries in the 20, for the rest of the 21st century. If we help Ukraine win, it'll set the scene for a 21st century where predatory countries cannot invade their neighbours illegally. But if we don't help Ukraine win... I think it's a very, very grim future ahead. And, you know, what I try to do is inform the Australian people about, you know, pay attention and we can't afford to uh, fail Ukraine in this endeavour because it will have profound strategic impacts. Just had a little glitch on the line there. I think that the audio and the visual is slightly slightly out of sync at the moment, but we'll, we'll plough on. We're coming towards the end. The Australian Australian Armed Forces has been in a bit of a transformation, I think, in the last last few years. Capital re-equipment, the AUKUS program with the UK and the US is very uh, very positive step. You've also had some moral challenges as well, the uh, the cases with, for the, with the Australian SAS, for example. Can you just get, take the temperature of the Australian military for us right now, please? Yeah. No, I think I'll start with the last one first. The, the Brereton Review unearthed some profound command and leadership failures in the Australian Army, in particular the Special Forces community. And those command and leadership failures have not yet been addressed. To be quite frank, rewriting doctrine and introducing a few courses and upping the rank of the Special Air Service Regiment is an insufficient command and leadership response to the worst series of war crimes in the history of our nation. 39 murders out of combat basically has seen no senior leader removed, not one, no senior leader except responsibility or accountability, no unit disestablished or removed from the orbit. So, you know, it worries me that the government and senior leadership of the ADF have not yet been able 
to respond appropriately to that. Now, if I look at the other, the rest of the army and the rest of the ADF, uh, which had zero accusations of war crimes in, in Afghanistan, I think the conventional force, which is the more important part of the force when it comes to deterrence, uh, and is getting is even more important in, as we move into these conventional conflicts, has transitioned to a different style of warfare pretty well. I, I think we've left behind the counterinsurgency stuff that we were doing for 20 years, the emphasis on conventional integrated joint and combined warfighting has been there for seven or eight years. So I, I think our head's in the right spot when it comes to the right kind of warfighting. I think the government's head is not in the right spot other than funding nuclear submarines that will come in 20 years, defences flatlined, uh, they're cutting combat forces out of the army and leaving the rest of the military with less money for maintenance and operations. So I think we've got some perilous times ahead and I just don't see the sense of urgency out of governments to respond to what is a very profound and difficult security challenge posed by the PLA and the Chinese Communist Party in the Western Pacific. Uh, just just pausing for a moment on the Brereton review, that was your review into um, alleged uh, illegal activity by Australian special forces in Afghanistan. I mean, there's a similar process under uh, starting here in, in the UK, and you note the difference between the experience of special forces and Australia's conventional forces. Do you think something happened morally? Do you think something with the, with the mission set that was given to, to that cadre of personnel, do you think something happened there and it was a wider systemic problem? Are you expecting to see some of the similar behaviours from, um, from the investigation into UK Special Forces? I think there were cultural issues in that unit well before Afghanistan and Iraq. There were issues with them in East Timor. There have been issues with their selection courses well before this. Uh, and indeed, as the Brereton Review found, much of the problem lay with unit culture, not the deployed culture, even though that was uh, pretty bad. Um, and that has not been addressed. So, you know, I, I think that it is a command and leadership failure by the current leadership of the ADF and Department of Defence to not get at that, to not hold senior leaders accountable and to, frankly, leave a unit on the organisational table that should have been disestablished, just as the Canadians disestablished their parachute regiment in the wake of the appalling events that happened in, in Somalia. Would you, if you, if you had the power and been in the position, would you have disbanded the unit? Yes, without a doubt. No unit should stand between the army and its citizens, and no unit should be allowed to behave like that without some consequences. And unfortunately, there's been no consequences. I, I'm scratching the edge of my uh, edge of my jigs away, but was it General Morrison, David, was it Morrison who said the standard you walk past is the standard you accept? I thought that was a very, a very powerful intervention. That was in regard to alleged um, sexual misconduct with, uh, with recruits. I thought it was a very powerful statement. That doesn't seem to have been baked into the to the psyche from what you're what you're suggesting that's that that as it seems to from the senior leadership they don't seem to be embody those principles or was it was it David well certainly certainly not in the special forces community uh, and certainly not in that group in western australia i mean there was a failure of accountability 
It was certainly the most profound command and leadership failure in the ADF's history. There's, there's just nothing like it. And if you read through the Brereton Review, not only were these events taking place, but there was deliberate and systemic obstruction towards investigations that were supposed to be conducted to this as well. So there's a lot to be done. I think the leadership at the time and leadership now have not yet responded in the right way to this. Thank you. But, but unit specific, you're not expecting anything equally horrific from the, the UK experience? I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know enough about the UK or, or the American examples. They've all been very good at keeping quiet at what happened. Uh, I would be very surprised if there weren't some similar issues that happened because at the end of the day, when humans aren't watched carefully and they're given the power of God to take life, uh, a small proportion of them will act in ways that don't accord with our values, and that has happened in every army in history, unfortunately. And uh, and last question, very briefly, because I've noted note the time. The, the events at the moment in the in the Middle East, and specifically these strikes, the U.S. strikes against alleged Iranian-backed militias in eastern Syria. Do you see this as necessary and proportional, or is this is this the, the sort of thin end of the wedge? Is, is, are we sliding into a much wider regional? potentially even more than that conflict? Well, I see it. The Americans are, uh, are on a pretty high tightrope here. I mean, they've been attacked a dozen times, so it's about time they started smacking back. I mean, they are a superpower and they need to send a message that if you attack us, we're going to destroy you. So I welcome those strikes and I would be surprised if there aren't more. You know, I, I think the Americans will be looking at not just messaging, but also if they have to strike, taking out... Uh, targets that are a threat to them, but also potentially transshipment points for weapons that might go to Hamas or Hezbollah. Clearly, no one else wants a wider war, but my suspicion is that these strikes on targets in Syria are probably quietly, but not publicly welcomed by many countries in the region who don't need those kind of destabilising elements there either. General Mech, plenty more we could talk about. I'd love to dig into the, uh, the PLA and what's happening in, uh, in your neck of the woods, maybe for another day. But for now, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for talking to Ukraine The Latest. No worries. It's been great to talk to you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.com co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. 
Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. <laughs>